When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, it's not very often that I become just totally obsessed with a fish. I mean, no, sure, it's happened quite a few times over the years, but when you sort of amortize it out over a lifetime in the hobby, it's a shockingly infrequent occurrence for me. The fishes which have reached, like, obsession level with me, they're quite varied, but they're not huge. The list includes some choices which, for whatever reason simply grab me on some particular level. And when I sort of analyze my favorites, some interesting commonalities become evident. Each one was very well suited for the botanical method aquariums that I play with and look and behave amazingly in these systems. And I think that's an important thing. For example, one of my all-time faves, the sailfin kerosene, uh, Cranucus spilurus, was likely the first fish which really grabbed me. It wasn't just the fish, it was the whole package, the meaning of the Latin genus name, which was Guardian of the Spring. Sounds very romantic. It was the habitats that it comes from, its unusual, almost cichlid-like behavior, and the fact that it caught my eyes when I was like eight years old, scrutinizing my dad's well-worn copy of the classic William T. in his book, Exotic Aquarium Fishes. Everybody has probably seen that book, or should, it's absolutely a classic. Anyway, when I finally found these fishes, after literally you know, decades of searching, I pounced and I purchased a group. Uh, they did not disappoint. They're a fascinating fish with an almost creepy, mysterious presence about them. So anyone who's ever, you know, kept them, you, you'll get this. And as anyone who's ever kept them can attest, they sort of appear out of nowhere in your tank and just disappear as quickly, fading back into the shadows. It's, it's very cool. Um, you'll be looking and then one will show up and then another one, another one. It's almost like they're teleported into your tank. It's very strange, but it's something I like about that fish. And it's one of those ones that just sat in my head for years. And uh, there's some others. Um, honestly, if a fish could earn the moniker of cool, the so-called dip tail or uh, sometimes it's called the, the, what is the other term for it? I think they sometimes call it the, the one line or the horse fish or whatever. Uh, the dip-tail pencil fish, uh, Nanostomus equus, would be it. It's absolutely not an overstatement to declare that these pencil fishes have distinct personalities. Seriously, they're not mindless drone stupid scolding fishes like some tetras. Sorry, my homies, love you guys lots, but you have no individual personalities. These are different. Um, there's a bunch of unique aspects to this fish's behavior, which I find enormously compelling. And interestingly, the Latin name of the species, equus, means knight or horseman or rider uh, in reference to the species' unique sort of oblique swimming angle. It swims at a sort of an angle about 45 degrees facing upwards. The angle is thought to give them an advantage in feeding. They see insects and stuff that flails from, you know, overhanging vegetation better than their horizontally oriented buddies like the tetras do. And they get more food that way. Pretty simple. Now, what I really love about these fishes, though, is that they're incredibly curious and obviously intelligent. There's 
checking out about everything which goes on in their aquarium. You get the feeling when you're observing them that they are actually acutely aware of their surroundings. And once they're acclimated, they're cautious but pretty much fearless. A fellow hobbyist once told me she thinks they're the freshwater equivalent of marine pipefish. And that sounds about right. I agree with that 100%. Maybe diptails are my absolute fave fish of all. Of course, if I go back a few decades, uh, it was an all-time favorite then. That was different. It's still one of my favorites now. The black ghost knife fish, Apternotus albifrons. Again, it goes back to my childhood. Uh, I remember reading one of Axelrod's books, Exotic Tropical Fishes, and the fantastic story about the legends behind the fish and how it was revered by South American tribes as a repository for the souls of their departed ancestors. I mean, cool. Uh, that's a pretty intriguing and alluring tale for a young kid, that's for sure. They weren't farm-raised then like they are now, too. So they were all wild-caught, which made them even more intriguing to me. And when you'd actually see them in the local fish store, they were, at the time, mind-bogglingly... Ex- <laughs> wow, did I botch that? Mind-bogglingly. I can't even say my own favorite adjective. Mind-bogglingly expensive at like 25 bucks a piece. And hey, I was like 11 years old, so that was a lot of money back then. Still pretty healthy price for a, the freshwater fish. Add to the fact that the fish was, you know, super intelligent, nocturnal, and just plain weird looking, and it was destined to be a lifetime fave of mine. Now, now again, that's one of those fishes that um, took me a long time to finally get one, and when I got one, it was just everything I expected it would be and more, and they've always held a uh, favored status in my life. Now, killifish also always held an almost irresistible appeal to me. I guess it was the habitats from which they came from, their method of reproduction and the egg incubation, and the fact that I rarely, if ever, encountered them in the fish stores. It was only after I joined the American Killifish Association at age 15 that I was really able to indulge myself. I tried and I loved many, many species. However, my all-time favorite was, and still is, Epiplates dagetii, the Monrovia population. It's a top spawning fish. It's regarded as a beginner's killie because it's easy to keep in spawn. It was the first killie I ever kept and bred, and almost everything about the fish appealed to me the minute I encountered it. In fact, almost any species in this rather subtly colored genus Epiplates captivates me, but this one remains my most loved killie. Um, if we go further, there were other fishes, like catfish, for example. I was never a big catfish person. And I never really became obsessed with them the way some hobbyists do. Regardless, there was one species which grabbed my attention, Peclochia compta, the so-called L134, leopard frog pleco. I think it was the color pattern that grabbed me first. And then upon hearing about them, it was the smaller size, its social habits, its xylophagic dietary preferences, and its endearing behaviors, which really lured me in. I was first able to obtain a captive bred specimen in 2016 or 2015 or 2016, and since then, I've never been without one. I currently have three of them, the most recent acquired from my friend and guest on our podcast, uh, Master Breeder Summer Tawari, and these captive bred fish are amazing, and they have a genuine personality, and they're absolutely some of the most entertaining fish I've ever kept. Even though they seem to sleep most of the day, you gotta respect that, right? And of course, more recently... Another obsession fist was the little Tucano Tetra, Tucano Ichthys Tucano, which really grabbed me. It's a tiny, incredibly attractive little kerosene, hailing from a very specific habitat, you know, covered with roots and leaves and vegetation. There was virtually no way I could resist this fish, and creating a dedicated Biotope-inspired aquarium for it was literally my destiny. When I did a little Googling and I found out the type paper by Jacques Guerri and all, with the original description of the fish, I knew this was one that I had to keep. 
and the paper included a few tantalizing tidbits about the locality where the fish was collected and gave me a lot of good data that would help me recreate the functional aspects of its habitat. And it required commitment. These little tetras cost around $12 each for a really tiny fish. That's a lot of money. And then again, it was worth it in every respect. It was and is very easy to fall for this fish. Now I have to admit, uh, sort of one heretical thing in the hobby anyway, I'm not a huge fan of cichlids. I know I am, you know, kind of crazy for that, right? It, but it's crazy to hear somebody admit it, but it's true. Most of them simply do nothing for me. I see most as big, messy, mean, destructive fish. Oh, sure, I love angels and discus, but I have no desire to dedicate a large aquarium to them and their fussy habits. Shit, I'll, I'll take a stony coral tank any day over a bunch of primadonna discus. <laughs> I've kept some epistos. They are cool, but again, they never really grabbed me. However, the one that did, the one cichlid that really hit me is, again, this little diminutive little fish. It's the interesting Dicrosis filamentosus, the checkerboard cichlid. I think the reason why is the fact that this fish is peaceful, small, won't spawn every week, you know, saddling with you with, you know, 500 fry that you don't want. And the fact that it's from blackwater habitats filled with leaf litter and tangled roots, the usual stuff. I've kept groups of these in botanical method aquariums on multiple occasions, and they've always proven to be just terrific additions to a peaceful community of fishes and just been great. Now, perhaps the most recent addition to my obsession list is what's called Valiant's Chocolate Guarami, Sveirikthes Valenti. This fish came to my attention a few years ago when I was studying those, you know, peat swamps and blackwater streams of Borneo. And if ever there was a fish that was perfect for its habitat, this could be it. It was one of those fishes that once I started keeping, I had to wonder why I never kept it before. Looking, you know, for all the world like a leaf at many times, this small peaceful and altogether endearing little fish captured my attention really early on. When I decided to set up an aquarium modeled on these cool, you know, Borneo habitats, I emphasized leaf litter and branches, adding, you know, which was for me unusual, the unusual usual choice of live aquatic plants, in this case, java fern, to further keep their environment shaded and dark, providing comfort for these fish, which are allegedly a little bit shy and bringing out their natural colors and behaviors. And they are a little bit shy, or at least they, they, they take a while to acclimate to captive life before they start coming out, but um, they eventually do. It's a fish that might have changed my perception of guarmies, which I always liked from being, you know, nice but not essential fishes for my collection to ones that I obsess over. Now, common threads of all these fishes are kind of interesting. It becomes obvious to me when I really start looking at things analytically, like I tend to do, that my favorite fish choices seem to reflect a preference for specific habitats or ecological niches. Almost all of my faves tend to come from smaller tributaries and streams with moderate to minimal current or little water movement. The habitats are typically filled with leaf litter, branches, and submerged root systems. Kind of not a surprise to you, I would imagine. And many of my favorite fishes come from flooded forests, again, no surprise, or other seasonally inundated habitats, and have specialized feeding, spawning, and foraging habits as an adaptation to these environments. Most are dimly lit, devoid of aquatic plants, with deeply tinted water and lots of overhanging terrestrial vegetation. Most of these fishes feed on alochthonous inputs, you know, stuff that comes from outside of the aquatic environment, like insects, small fruits, and flowers. Some display unusual dietary preferences, such as eating detritus, fungal growths, or lignin from submerged roots and wood. Pretty much all of them spend large amounts of time foraging. Another common denominator of these fave fishes is that they are intimately tied to their environments. They 
move within or migrate among similar habitats throughout most of their lives. And as aquarium fishes, they categorically seem to do better when long-term when they're kept in tanks, which replicate to some degree the function and form of their natural habitats. And these aquatic habitats are profoundly influenced by the terrestrial habitats which surround them. I think that this love for the fishes and the allure of their natural habitats is really what drew me to the whole idea of botanical method aquariums. I believe that the environments themselves are as interesting and compelling as the fishes which inhabit them. And I have dedicated a substantial portion of my hobby life to studying, understanding, and attempting to replicate the functional aspects of them in my aquariums. My love for these fishes and their habitats is very much evident in the DNA of tannin aquatics too. I mean, it's what the whole thing is all about, really. Now, the other common denominator among my fish choices is that most of them are not exactly what most people would call colorful. In fact, the bulk of them tend to be brown, black, gray, or some combination of the three. Now, rather, they're earthy-looking fishes that are perfectly designed to complement the environments from which they come. I think, actually, well, I guess I'm certain that this coloration thing is one of the other things which attracts me to many of them. This subtle, interesting, and remarkably complex coloration is something that I find compelling. From a purely aesthetic standpoint, the fishes complement their surroundings and become part of it rather than standing out and placing the habitat in the background. In the botanical method aquarium, it's great to have a little pop of color against those deep, rich colors of leaves and seed pods and stuff and the tinted water. However, one of the surprising things I discovered years ago is that the more subtle fishes tend to pop more in blackwater tanks or tanks with tinted water. Now, surprising not in that they display better colors, you know, the environmental conditions we create assist in that, but surprising in that they tend to catch your eyes more than you might expect. Even the more cryptically colored and shaped fishes do this. In fact, they're somewhat more engaging in this setting to me than the obvious brightly colored fishes. Think about like twig catfish and and fishes like that, which just look right in a botanical method aquarium with all this stuff on the bottom. Now, some of these fishes do have flashier colors at times, which makes them a bit more exciting to some people. I suppose in the case of uh, Cranucus bullurus, the sailfin, uh, the males have an extended dorsal and anal fin, and they're larger and more colorful than females. But again, colorful is relative here. When you see a group, you'll notice the sexual dimorphism right away, even among juveniles, but they're never going to compare to, say, a cardinal tetra or something really bright. What really gets me going with my favorite fishes, though, is their behaviors or how they interact with their environment. Again, I turn to the sailfin kerosene. Now, individuals of this species spend a lot of their time sheltered under dead leaves, branches, roots, aquatic plants, that kind of stuff. And they tend to hover and they don't dart about like your typical tetra would. In fact, their behavior reminds me of the dart fishes of the marine aquarium world. They sort of sit and flick their fins, often moving in slow, deliberate motions. Is it communication? Perhaps. And the sailfin feeds during the daylight hours and spends a lot of its time sheltering. Um, basically, it's a mid-water feeder consuming, you know, particular organic matter like, you know, uh, detritus and so forth, aquatic invertebrates, insects, bits of flowers and fruits, that kind of stuff. Even the dietary preferences of this fish give you some idea of the habitat from which it comes. And it gives you some inspiration to replicate aspects of it within the aquarium. Let's talk just for a little bit about how the environments in which fishes are found can affect their behavior or how they interact with their aquarium that you're going to create. My overarching suggestion to you, first of all, is create the aquarium environment around the specific fish you'll want to keep. Really, I know that's hardly, you know, groundbreaking. However, I think that lately more tanks 
are designed around the aquascape and then the fishes are sort of force fit into them as sort of accessories or set pieces i mean arches and tunnels might be neat to look at and fishes will swim through them but what about the kinds of structures that they actually you know experience in nature what about modeling structures found in the habitats that they come from how many brightly illuminated tanks with green neon tetras or Kobdautai rasbora seem to overlook the fact that these fishes often come from tangled, turbid, and even tinted habitats and with mostly terrestrial influence, not aquatic plants and lots of, you know, white, clean rock? It might be kind of fun and educational to study where your fishes are found in the natural streams, lakes, and rivers that they come from and work backwards. I mean, fishermen have been doing this for eons, so why don't fish hobbyists? makes perfect sense because, well, we have a pretty fair collective understanding of how fishes interact with their environment, don't we? I think we do. Let's just briefly discuss some of the more common features in natural bodies of water uh, where fishes are commonly found. This might give you some insight into how to incorporate them into an aquascape. And, and I don't have to discuss flooded forests all that much because we've pretty much beaten the shit out of that more than anything over the last few years. Suffice it to say, my obsession with these habitats is well-founded. They're filled with amazing features, ranging from tree trunks to root tangles to submerged terrestrial plants and leaf litter, all of which we can replicate in the aquarium in a pretty dramatic fashion. And then there's those flooded Pantanal meadows. Um, we've had our friend Ty Streitman talk about these many times. He spent many hours searching through those, those flooded meadows, which are essentially grasslands with low scrub brush and plants. They're flooded seasonally, and they provide a, a rich and diverse underwater habitat for a variety of fishes, a lot of kerosens and cichlids and so forth. And these habitats, equally as engrossing as the flooded forest, are almost never replicated in the aquarium for reasons that I can't quite understand. Uh, perhaps it's the dirty aesthetic which has thrown people off, you know, the cloudy water or whatever. R regardless, the fishes make use of the submerged grasses and vegetation for foraging and for spawning among. And of course, there's many features of these habitats that can easily be incorporated into just about any type of aquarium. Think about how you might incorporate them into your next scape. Let's talk about streams and you know rivers and smaller bodies of waters, tributaries. A few sweeping generalities here. Now, first off, many of these fishes tend to live in areas where the food and protection is, as we've talked about before. You know where it's present. Places that provide protection from stronger current and above and below water predators are where they want to be. Places where they can create territories, interact, spawn, and defend themselves. Bends and streams and rivers um, are, are pretty interesting places because the swifter the movement will typically carry food and then the fishes seem to know this. So they'll, they'll sort of congregate. And if there's a tree branch, a trunk or a big rock or rocks to break up the flow, there's a larger congregation of fishes present. It makes sense. They're waiting for that food to come by. So the conclusion here is that, at least in theory, if you design your tank to have a higher open water flow rate, and includes some features like rocks and large branches, you'll likely see the fishes hanging in those areas. In situations where you're replicating faster flowing stream environments, think about creating some little rock pockets, perhaps on one side of the aquarium, to create areas of calmer water movement. You know, your fishes are typically going to orient themselves facing upstream, you know, to catch any food particles that happen on by. That's just what they do. So from a design perspective, if you want to create a cool rock feature that your fishes will likely gather in, Orienting the flow towards it would be a good way to accomplish this in the aquarium, in my opinion. Wow, I can go on and on and talk about my favorite fishes and the environments from which they come, but I think you get the picture. And, and you'll see that if you examine your list of obsession fishes closely, I'll bet you'll find some commonalities too. I think that's almost inevitable, and they're always sort of tied to the environment, or in many cases, they might be tied to the environment. 
And one of the most exciting things about this hobby is that you can pretty much count on finding some new fish or fishes which will catch your fancy at some point during your hobby career. Fishes that you likely haven't even thought about until the moment that you stumble on them. Fishes which being, you know, go from being, oh, that's a cool fish to, oh my god, I have to have that one. I mean, don't you ever wonder what species will that be? It's okay to be obsessed. I hope you are. Stay excited. Stay curious. Stay engaged. Stay curious. Stay obsessed. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.